Hello, and welcome to the Tech Dirt Podcast. I'm Mike Masnick. The world is increasingly technological, so we have better get methodical. Bringing precision to critical digital journalism with the singular vision of the modern monocle. Stopping the copyright bullies from pulling the wall on us. Facing and taking on all the plates you pay to troll. Document the ways that they aim to take control. Scrutinizing through their lies and make them fall. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. If we don't stand up to them, someone will get hurt. To grab a shovel and dig up the tech. Uh, over the last few months, we've uh, covered a variety of topics relating to politicians and technology, from Denise Howell's discussion about better informing the public which politicians and policymakers actually understand technology, to the discussion we had with Zach Graves and Daniel Schulman talking about reviving the Office of Technology Assessment to make Congress at least somewhat uh, more informed about technology. But there are also other related issues, including how do we get actual technologists more engaged on the policy side of things. It's perhaps a bit stereotypical, but that may be because it has a grain of truth in it that the normal way that many techies want to deal with policy questions and policymakers is by simply demanding that uh, the policymakers get out of the way uh, or that they uh, or the technologists focus on simply trying to code or hack their way around policy based impediments. However, there's really a lot more to this discussion than that. And part of that requires technologists to actually get involved and play a role. Uh, most listeners of the podcast will probably already be familiar with our guest today, Bruce Schneier, who is uh, a famous as a uh, computer security guru and author. But uh, if you look at his own bio, he refers to himself as a public interest technologist, and he notes that he is working at the intersection of security, technology, and people. Uh, earlier this year, Bruce wrote a fascinating blog post about this idea of public interest technologists and why we need not just more of them, but also the infrastructure to support such a role. Uh, personally, in the past, I've, I've worried that when it comes to tech policy debates, too much of it is really dominated by the lawyers. Uh, and that's not a knock on lawyers, uh, many of whom are great and knowledgeable and excellent advocates. Uh, and there are certainly plenty of lawyers who either come from a technology background or really have a deep enough understanding of the technology to, to be effective advocates. However, that's still different from having actual technologists engaged in the policy discussion. And that's a lot of what Bruce's article is about and what he's here today to discuss. So, Bruce, welcome to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, so let's start with an explanation of what do you mean when you say a public interest technologist? So it's, a, it's kind of a catch-all term. Ford Foundation defines it as technology practitioners who focused on social justice, the common good, and or the public interest. Now, that feels kind of circular, but I think we know it when we see it. <laughs> it's techies that are doing policy work. It's techies that are advising policymakers. It is tech techies who are working on public interest projects like uh, the Tor browser or possibly working in the IT department for public interest organizations. Mm -hmm or possibly working on public interest focused things. It's people who are trying to bridge, you know, as you talked about in the introduction, the divide between tech and policy. And the term is kind of universally thought of as blah, but we don't have a better <laughs> one. And the nice thing about public interest tech is that it harkens back to public interest law, yeah. like lawyers that focus on the public interest. And we know what that means. Right. So that's why we're using public interest tech. Uh, 
Yeah. And that's kind of what it means. I, I mean, one of the things that I actually I found really um, useful in thinking about it, and you have this in your article, is that comparison to public interest law. And and you had a little bit of the history there, where which I didn't even really know, that sort of public the idea of public interest law is a relatively new concept itself. Um, and, and so I guess, you know, some of what you're talking about here is, is trying to get that, the concept, you know, applied more broadly to, to public interest tech as well. And, and I didn't know that about law either. I mean, it turns out it was deliberately created in the 1970s by uh, philanthropic organizations. Yeah. And before that, the notion of public interest law just didn't exist. And these organizations like the Ford Foundation – uh, they funded legal aid clinics at universities so students can practice discrimination law, immigration law, housing law. They funded fellowships at the NAACP, ACLU, and elsewhere. And they sort of created this world where public interest is part of any lawyer's portfolio. Right? Doing pro bono work is normal. It's expected. You're not going to make partner right. if you don't do it. Now, it's something you do with some of your time. And there's nothing like that in tech. There isn't this notion that you're going to spend 20% of your time doing public interest tech. I mean, there's, there's a little bit of it at some organizations. Mm -hmm. uh, Google and Microsoft do have sabbatical programs. They do have this notion you can work some of your time on public interest-focused projects. But it is around the edges, and it's not really normalized the way it is for law. I'd like to see that. I mean, a couple of years ago, I sort of step back. Right now, 20% of Harvard's law school graduates go into public interest law. That's mm. what they do. And a couple of years ago, there was a soul-searching seminar at Harvard Law School because that percentage was so low. <laughs> right In tech, the percentage is close to zero. Yeah. And I think we could do better. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting, too, because, like, you know, I, I know I, I know plenty of people who end up going to law school, and I, I do know a lot of them sort of go into law school with the uh, belief that they're going to do public interest law, and then uh, and then they don't. <laughs> um, but but even well, so, there are different there yeah. are different ways to do it. Yeah, I mean, especially so to go back to law. You know, right now you work as a staff attorney at the ACLU, and you're going to make one third to one tenth right. of what you would make at a private law firm or in a corporation. Now, that being said, ACLU National Office posts a job listing, and they get over 100 applicants. Right. Right? So, so people do want to do that, but you don't have to give up your salary to do public interest. You could do it part-time. Right. You can, back to law, You know, take a couple of years and serve an administration and then go back. You can serve on advisory roles. You, you, can, you can help out part-time. It would be good if tech had a lot of those avenues as well. And we're, while we're starting to see some, it isn't nearly as robust. Yeah. And, and you know, and as you said, we are starting to see some, right? I mean, there are things like um, like U.S. Digital Services, right, which is this program that allows techies to sort of, you know, serve a term in government and sort of take a, take a break from a job for, for a year or two and, and go work in, in um, you know, sort of that's mostly sort of building tech for for government services but there's uh, also tech congress yes so you can take a year and serve on a congressional staff yeah and and you know so a lot of these things i talk about they all exist a little bit <laughs> right? right but they're just not scaling 
Yeah. Latanya Sweeney teaches uh, security and big data at, at Harvard. She spent two years as the chief technologist of the Federal Trade Commission. Yeah. Right? That's fantastic. But, you know, we need her and people like her in, in all aspects of government right? and in the private sector and at NGOs and at the press and, and, and. Yeah. We, you know, we need this to be to be big, to be to be bigger. Yeah. And and actually, I mean, I think that that's that's a good point that you're making. It's not just about sort of the policymaker stuff. Right. I mean, um, there has been all, certainly a lot of discussion about about, you know, media not necessarily understanding tech when they're reporting on it, which I think is a big problem. Um, and there are some some organizations, I think, that that at least some of the time do a good job of sort of bringing in technologies to, to assist. But uh, you're right that it's not, it is not a common thing. And, and, and you know, the exceptions in, in, in the media, right? Julia Angwin, Kashmir right. Hill, these people like, like them have been reporting tech driven journalism for probably decades now. And, and, you know, they're starting to get good jobs. I think Kashmir Hill was just hired by the New York times. Right. So we're seeing more of this, but we need even more. Yeah. Um, so, so how, how, how do we get more? What, what, what do you think is the best way to get there? So this is hard and, and, and it is a very much a chicken and egg problem. Mm -hmm. I think right now a huge problem is supply. There aren't enough technologists willing to do this, but as bad as that problem is, I think the demand problem is even worse. Mm -hmm. There are more people who want to do this than there are places for them to go. And yeah. more people want to serve on congressional staffs than there are Congress people who realize they need these people <laughs> on congressional staffs. Right? Right. More people want to go to the FTC and the SEC and work on you know, the policy of algorithm discrimination, all of these things, and there are places for them. So you know, I think we just need to, to crank the wheel, prime the pump, whichever metaphor you like, <laughs> that – you know, that that makes it so there's more demand, which means more supply, which is more demand and have it become normal. And yeah. so some things are happening. The uh, there is now the Public Interest Tech University Network with the annoying acronym of PITON, <laughs> which is, I think, 21 universities uh, today that are doing uh, joint degree programs and joint other things to try to make more of these people. Right, either technologists who have some policy training mm -hmm. or policymakers with some tech training. And so there's some of that. I'm teaching cybersecurity at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government. Mm. Right? I'm trying to teach how the Internet works and security to policy students. Yeah. Right. So, so we, we need we need that. We, we need that at sort of at the university level. But now we also need places them to go. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 talking this up, and, and we have some, right? The Electronic Frontier Foundation has long done sure. public interest tech, right? I mean, they are that's what they do. Right. ACLU is starting to. Someone from our community, John Callis, mm -hmm. cybersecurity expert, uh, uh, ran PGP for a while. Uh, it has been at Apple, I think, several times. Yep. He has taken a two-year sabbatical from Apple to be an ACLU technology policy fellow. That's yep. fantastic. And, you know, while he has no guarantee of a job at Apple when he gets done, <laughs> you know, we, we all know that his experience will be extraordinarily valuable. Right. 
and and we just need more of of that. And I mean, it's scaling it. Right. I, mean, I had someone describe it as. Bruce, we need to figure out how to make more of you. Like, yeah, that's right. But I'm kind of weird. We need to be able to make this viable for people who are not me. Yeah. Well, there, there's, there's, I mean, there are a few different elements of it that I that I think are interesting. And, and one is that, um, you know, and I sort of mentioned this in the intro that that a lot of technologists, at least that I know, um, you know, at least claim that they don't care about policy. And, and I've I've made this joke for for a long time that like. You know, in some sense, TechDirt is is one of the the more successful sort of tech policy blogs because that's what we talk about all the time. But but I think part of the reason why it was successful is that we never called it tech policy and we don't use the word policy because I I, I feel like uh, among the technology community, if you mention policy, they just sort of shut down, right? Because it feels boring. Well, we we need to fix that. So we're, <laughs> we're learning a couple learning a couple things in the past few years. These are not tech systems. These are socio-technical systems, yeah. right? The people are essential components in the tech we build, which means the soft, the social sciences are really important. You can't ignore sociology and psychology and economics yeah. when you do cybersecurity or when you build a social network, when you do anything, right? Those days are over, right? It's not just the tech. It is a socio-technical system. Also, these are now very critical socio-technical systems. I mean, we do not want our social networks to undermine democracy. That's kind <laughs> of bad. Yeah. And we also know that the tech companies are, if not the biggest lobbyists on Capitol Hill, one of the biggest lobbyists. Yeah. So they're taking policy seriously. And lastly, tech is now able to kill people. <laughs> We're talking about driverless cars. We're talking about drones. We're talking about killer robots. We're talking about all of these uh, synthetic biology, all of these tech areas that are not going to be free of regulation. It's not like this is a spreadsheet. Don't don't regulate me. Right. It's like this is an embedded heart monitor. Yes, you're going to be regulated. So you know, as information technology starts affecting the world in a direct physical manner. Governments are getting involved. I mean, it's no longer the choice between government regulation and no government regulation. It's choice between smart government regulation and stupid government regulation. <laughs> and if that's our choice, we need to be in the room. Right. Right. The technologists need to be there. Otherwise, you get things like Orrin Hatch at uh, the Facebook hearings asking <laughs> Mark Zuckerberg how he makes money. Right. That's scary. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, earlier you were discussing sort of a few different elements of this, and 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 one certainly is the fact that like you know a lot of people who do go into tech, right? I mean, the the demand for for good engineers at at internet and other tech related companies right now is is so high that you know the the uh, you know compensation levels are are really really high, and so you know the idea of going into sort of public interest tech instead of you know taking a, a job at a private company in tech, you know there's there's going to be a pretty big difference in compensation, and so you know how do you deal with that? I mean, I guess you could argue that that was true of law as well, and they seem to figure out a way around it. But and, and that's what we found, right? Yeah. Remember, three x a ten x difference between working for the SCLU and working. At a major law firm, 
it doesn't it, it it's not for most people but it will be for some people right and i think you find that in all areas of society that some people don't do it for the money right. a lot of people do but some don't but i don't need a lot of people i just need some people Right. So I don't think that'll be a problem. I actually think that'll work itself out. I think that's the least of our problems. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I mean, do you think that there is, I mean, you sort of mentioned Google and Microsoft do a little bit in terms of even for, for people that they do employ, employ, like giving them some time either sabbatical or, or some sort of, you know, I don't know if, if it's 20% time or, 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 you know, something along that concept that would encourage them to work on public interest um, thing while still being employed at a large company. Um, do you think that that kind of thing could become more common in the same sense that like doing some percentage of pro bono work has become standard for lawyers? I think that'll be part of it. I, mean, I think all of these become part of it. It's not going to be one thing. It's going to be all these little things working together. It'll be mm -hmm. some people doing it full time, some people doing it as sabbatical, some people doing it, you know, sort of 20% or, or extracurricular. And then all together, we sort of figure out how to make this work. Yeah. Um, and, and then, you know, one of the other things that, that, that I've been thinking about, and again, you sort of mentioned this a little bit in terms of like, you know, how intertwined and interconnected these different systems are and sort of the, the, the level of knowledge you need to understand um, is, is so intertwined. And so there's this idea that like, you know, it, you know, I sort of complained a little bit in the, at the beginning that it's, it's sort of, you know, the policy space is dominated by lawyers. Um, but I think it is good to have, you know, technology knowledgeable people. But it's also true that, like, you also have to understand statistics and economics and history. And there's so many different things. And so but everyone doesn't have to understand everything. Right. I mean, sort of if you think about it, you know, farm policy. Uh -huh. Right. Uh, I don't know. Nuclear policy. These are all v aviation policy. These are all very technical things. And our lawmakers manage, we can argue how well, but they manage by having staffs. Right. Right? One person doesn't have to understand everything, but someone on everybody's staff needs to understand everything. And when you get to tech, I, mean, I think you could easily argue the most critical problems of our century are fundamentally technological. Yeah. You know, future of work, AI and, and ethics and AI and fairness, even social networks, cybersecurity, food safety, climate change. These, you know, this is all science. This is all technology. You know, it's no longer okay to, to not understand it. Now, I mean, I kind of like having, I forget his name because the, 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 the Democratic presidential candidate who has no chance of winning, but like, talks about encryption mm -hmm. talks about blockchain okay so he's a little bit crazy but he's <laughs> talking about this stuff no one else is right is that uh andrew yang i think yeah that's that that's him yeah 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 um yeah yeah no and and you know in the same sense and i i had mentioned this or we had talked about it a little bit when we had uh, denise howell on the podcast that there was the story uh, a few months back that that beto o'rourke uh, in his younger days was uh, a member of the cult of the dead cow um, and he actually was this right. is uh, right this <laughs> You know, but but that was interesting because to me it was like, well, wait, you know, he he may actually understand some of the technology issues that that so many of the other candidates don't seem to understand. You know, I say this in my book. I I think of this like you know, Star Trek: Next Generation. Mm -hmm. When they have a big problem, they all sit around Picard's <laughs> briefing room, right? Right. And 
someone like says some science and someone else says some technology and Picard listens and doesn't say that's fake news, doesn't say <laughs> I don't like your science, give me different science, nods and says, mm, got it, okay, here's what we're going to do. Right. right. That's what we want. Picard doesn't have to be the scientist. He just has to have them on staff and believe what they tell him. Right. If we got that far in government, we'd be doing great. Yeah. I mean, so some of that, though, is like, I mean, that gets to sort of like a congressional staffing issue. I mean, again, something we talked about a little bit, that there's there's less and less staff, that there's no, you know, Office of Technology Assessment. And even and, and you talked about that in, in the introduction, right, yeah. that we lost the Office of Technology Assessment, which was a huge boon to Congress for understanding tech. And I, you said you had interview, someone come on talking about bringing it back. Yep. I've seen various proposals and what form would have to look like. But think about that the states need this too yep. yep wouldn't it be neat if we had some kind of public or interest organization doesn't have to be government funded it could be private funded that just feels the same questions from states yeah and local governments on face recognition yep on body cams yep Right? On Internet of Things, on driverless cars, on, on, on all of these issues that are having to be decided at the state and local level. There's no such technology organization to help them. Yeah. Let's start there. And, and, and it is worth noting that, like, if you think Congress is bad on technology policy, uh, most interactions with state governments on, on tech policy will be even like, worse. With the exception of Berkeley, right, and Cambridge. Uh-huh. Right. I mean, yes, the, 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 the zip codes that happen to be where the major tech universities are, they do great. Right. Everybody else is really bad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've had uh, very eye-opening discussions in Sacramento with, with, with California state politicians where, um, that, that scared me, <laughs> but, but yes, no, I, I think, I think there's, 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 there's a, a really good point. I mean, so, I mean, is some of this though, and, and, and we didn't really discuss this, but I think, you know, some of this is also, um, understanding how things work the other way, right? I mean, so getting technologists to sort of understand the way in which policy making works, because that's, that is, uh, uh, a process that is very different than I think most people think it think it uh, in terms of how it works. I think we have, we have a couple of, of issues there. Yes, I mean getting technology to understand policy is mm-hmm. important, and you know we we see this battle in in going dark and some of these other issues. You know, techies like to get the answer. Policy <laughs> right. is is iterative. On the other hand, techies are happy to fail and try again. Yeah, policy loathes to do that. Yeah. So taking you to understand how policy works, but also we need to figure out how policy works in the 21st century. Mm -hmm. That is pretty clear that the policy mechanisms of the industrial age aren't working that well in the information age. And what policy looks like, how to make it agile, how to make it responsive, we don't really know how to do that yet. Yeah. So we, we need to figure that out. But but yes, you'll, you'll talk to a techie about a policy, and they'll say something like, well, try this. It doesn't work. Try something else. Yeah. To a policymaker, that's crazy. You only get one attempt to try. You don't, you don't try <laughs> in policy. You spend two years, you get your law passed, and you're done. Yeah. 
That's yeah. not the way we do software. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And and, and we, in fact, we try yeah. a lot of things. Yeah. So so how do we bridge that gap? Yeah. And I, I actually think that that is that is one of the biggest issues. And and the fact that like it goes beyond that. It's not just like you know the design of software is this sort of you know iterative process where you're you're testing stuff and and seeing. But like be, because of that, you know when technologists design stuff, you design in the ability to sort of check and and see how it works and determine whether or not your your hypothesis in terms of why you were developing it actually uh, stands. And that does not. You know that is not certainly not uh, built into the DNA of of uh, policymaking. You you know say we're going to you know fix patent law and you pass a big patent reform bill and then you forget about it until people are screaming about whatever whatever bad results came of it. But there's no there's no concept of like designing the law to then have some sort of metric to check to see if what you what you were passing actually did what you wanted it to. And the old way worked well when tech moves slow. Yeah. When it's someone invents the telephone, you've got 30 years before they penetrate society to figure out the law of the telephone. Yeah. I mean, today, I mean, remember drones? <laughs> yeah. For for many years, it, you couldn't regulate drones because it was too early and they would stifle the industry. Right. Then suddenly everyone got one for Christmas <laughs> and then it became too late to regulate drones who are already here. Yeah. Like, you know, the world moves so fast today that this old way of figuring it out, getting it right, and and then being done till next time doesn't work. I mean, this is the waterfall model of software, right? The, you have these massive releases of, of, of a software product and they take two to three years and then you're done. But what do we do today? We update our software every week. Right. right? Little bits of update. You know, so this is agile. Yeah. How do we get agile policymaking? Well, I think the tech community has some ideas about that. Yeah. And I think some of them might be good ideas. Certainly, they should be listened to and evaluated because the old way is not going to work. Tech moves too fast. Yeah. And Facebook went from zero to, you know, undermining democracy in, what, <laughs> 10 years? Yeah, yeah. That's, you know. So how do we how do we make this better? I mean, what do we do? A driverless cars are going to reshape our society in ways that I think are mostly unimaginable. Right. They're going to change the world. And, and, and weird things like the fact that most emergency rooms make their money in auto accidents. What happens when the auto accidents disappear? Yeah. And yeah. emergency rooms become not viable anymore. <laughs> Yeah. You know, what happens when you never need to park a car, just, just drives around? Is yeah. that good? Is that bad? I like the idea of turning all uh, parking lots in back into lots that are parks. Sure. But, you know, what are the environmental ramifications of this? So, I mean, these things need to be thought about. And, and not even be thinking about the future of work and AI and robotics and autonomy. These are big deals. Yeah. Yeah, no, and 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 you know, obviously, predicting the future is is uh, you know no easy task on its on its own. But certainly, so can we be agile, right? If right. we can't predict it, how can we be agile? We need to be okay with getting it wrong. Right. Right now, the cost of getting it wrong in policy is expensive. How do we make it cheaper? Yeah. Yeah, that's actually a really good framing. I like that that way of thinking about it, right? Because because of the structure and sort of um, momentum of policy that that 
Yeah, it is very expensive because you're locking in something. And, and at the very least, even if you do something very bad in, in policymaking where there may be a fix down the road, it, you're still talking a few years. And that could be a few years of pretty significant damage in the meantime. Uh, All right, I'm taking notes. We'll write this up. <laughs> Excellent, excellent. I, 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 that's that is a really good way of thinking about. It. Now, you know, there is, of course, the the difficulty there is that you know, the, there are reasons why policymaking is done the way it's done, and some of that is is legacy, and some of that is history. Changing that itself is, uh, you know, is is a pretty massive project <laughs> on its own, right? Uh, I mean, that's a separate question. I mean, yeah. we, we could talk about where we need to where we need to be. Yeah. How do we get from here to there? Here's where policymakers are going to teach us a thing or two. Yeah. Because we don't know. I don't know about the process. Yeah. I can't tell you what the process is for changing the way government works. But there are historians. Yeah. Right. There are ethicists. There are. Uh, policymakers, political scientists who do know, yeah. who have studied this, who know about political and social change in a way that technologists don't. Yep. So yep. Here's, here's another way we need both of us talking. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, and I think that's true. And of course, like, you know, one of the things, you know, I, and I certainly, I really like the idea of sort of agile policymaking and, I, and I've talked about it, not quite in that terminology before, but I do like that. That is the framing. Um, but I also see how people would, misrepresent it and sort of freak out about it, right? Because you would have this argument that, um, you know, sort of, uh, you know, policymaking often requires a very detailed process to sort of prove that you explored all the options and, you know, took public comments. But, but this is because change is expensive. Yeah. If change becomes cheaper. Right. Maybe you don't need to do all that. I mean, I, I don't know. Right. But. But that conceit, which is certainly true, is a function of the times we're living in. Yeah. So maybe we can fix that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now, I don't have the answers. I just have like <laughs> new questions. Right. 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 No, but I, I think it is. It, it is a really valuable way of thinking about it. And I'm just sort of trying to think through the implications of it and sort of how you would how you would make that a reality and sort of what they what the objections would be, whether whether fair or not fair, um, just right. recognizing that certainly these are the kinds of objections that people would make and say, like, you know, if you didn't have to go through that huge process, then, you know, people could slip in, you know, dangerous or, or bad ideas into, you know, into policy. But, the, but, but this yeah. sounds like a new release of Windows. Sure. Yeah. Right. I mean, right, we're used to people slipping in, either <laughs> accident, mostly accidentally right. bad things. Right. We just have a really good patch mechanism. <laughs> right, right. And, 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 and a recognition of, of, of a concept called, you know, of bugs, right? You know, right. Could, could we, could we, you know, bring that over to the policymaking world and, and make people realize that there are bugs in policy that need to be, you know, fixed and patched? <laughs> I, I'd like it if we could, right? And the notion yeah. of a, like a bug in a law, right? We passed this law yeah. and we found a vulnerability, right? Yeah. Someone has hacked the law. Yeah. yeah. Now, when that <laughs> happens normally, you know, we think, great, you know, you found the tax dodge. Right. <laughs> and we sort of give them free reign because they won. In, in tech, we don't do that. Right. Yeah. 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 No, the more you think about it, the more the more fun this is. And, and uh, 
That's because we don't have to actually do it. <laughs> That's we can right. sit here and come out with the ideas. <laughs> yes, yes. The yes. devil's in the details here, oh, and yeah. I'm, you know, right? The details are not easy. <laughs> yes, yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. I, th- I think that's true. But it is, it is fun to think about, right? Uh, um, yes. And and to think about, you know, how can we get more in that direction? We, we've sort of started to stray into almost um, science fiction areas here, but um, I think it's, I think it's a valuable thought exercise. Um, just to go through that process. But, but I think, you know, bringing it back around to sort of more um, near term, more likely stuff, you know, I do think, you know, the, the overall point of getting more people thinking about sort of public interest technology is really important. Are you, I don't know if you've seen the, um, uh, what the Aspen Institute is doing with like the Aspen tech policy fellows. I I think it's a great idea. I'm I'm peripherally involved in that. Uh So I think that's another example of, ways to do this um new america yep has public interest tech fellows yep. that are doing some of this work i mean again all the pieces are there in, in nascent form right but it's how do we scale it right that's the real question we don't have to invent this it's being invented there are unicorns who are doing this right, right. but it needs to become become as common as public interest law. Yeah. And I think, I think part of the point that, that you raised at the beginning that I think is worth highlighting as well is like that it's both a, a supply and a demand side issue, right? I mean, you sort of need both of those to, to sort of boost both of those at the same time to make it work. Otherwise you have a sort of very uneven marketplace and that, that creates other problems. But if we could, if we could get both, you know, more, more positions where public interest technology could be useful and more people knowledgeable and willing to be involved in public interest technology at the same time and sort of build up both sides of that. I hate to call it a marketplace, but that marketplace. It, but it is a marketplace. Yeah. It is. It, you know, and I actually think some of that marketplace needs to be built up. How do these people find each other? How do we make right. communities? I mean, think of this as a market. It, it, it's, it's a skill that we want to be in more demand and want now on more of the skill. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a really good uh, report by Friedman Consulting uh-huh. on this, and they look at it as a market. And they list like 40 different interventions and ways yeah. to make this better. Yeah. Yeah. Be be interesting to see. I mean, and I do think I mean, I do think that there is this recognition now, whereas, um, you know, what I'd said in the intro and, and earlier, just this idea of, you know, a lot of technologists sort of say, you know, hey, stay out of my way. I think that is changing to some extent. Right. I think that that because of the the. Um, not just global impact of technology today, but as you described, how it, you know, technology has become a part of everything. You know, everything is a technology business. It is not its own silo anymore in any way. And not, I would argue it never necessarily was, but more today than, than ever before. Technology is a part of absolutely everything. And I think people are recognizing that the, the policy related questions associated with that are, you know, integral to, 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 to everything that we do and, and, you know, life and health and transportation and jobs and, and, and everything. And so I think there is this growing recognition of these issues. It's just, you know, figuring out how to actually get, get the people engaged. And, and again, on sort of both sides of that, that market. So I agree. So before we finish up, I want yeah. to give your listeners a, a resources page. I All maintain right. a web page on public interest tech and it's, a listing of articles and programs and organizations, pretty much everything we've talked about and more. And it's publicinteresttech.com with hyphens. Okay. And I am constantly updating that. I mean, I'll ah. put this podcast on it. Excellent. And you know, of, of just different p- 
people writing about it, different people doing it, and different organizations that are trying to make this happen. So anybody who's interested, please go visit that. It's publicinteresttech.com with hyphens. Yes, yes. So, so uh, everyone who's listening to this should go go check it out and and uh, and and see. And if you um, are at all interested in this, and hopefully if you're listening to this podcast, then you are interested in this stuff, um, and you're not involved in in various projects like this. Um, please, you know, think about ways that that you might get engaged, or or think about ways that some of this stuff can, that that you can get other people engaged. I think that's that's kind of part of it as well. I think the more the more that we know other people who are doing this kind of stuff, the more interesting it becomes. And I, you know, uh, we, we sort of mentioned very briefly Tech Congress at the beginning. It's a really interesting program. I think I've mentioned it a couple times in the past, but it's this idea of you know really bringing in you know technologists to as sort of you know on a one-year uh, sort of fellowship to to help. And you talk to people who've done Tech Congress, and it says it changed their life. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you learn a lot. Yeah. About how uh, how government works by yeah. being in government for a year or two. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it makes a, a, a really big difference. And, and I think that program is one that's really, really interesting. It's relatively new. It's only been a few years that they've been doing it now. Um, but there are, as you mentioned, there are some really great success stories. Um, you know, I know some people have gone all the way through it. I know some people who are, are in it right now. And, and everyone that I've spoken to really, really says it is, you know, as you mentioned, sort of, you know, world changing uh, in terms of the impact. And I think in both directions. I mean, you've seen, you know, the um, uh, the, the senators and, and congressional members who, who have you know, had fellows from the Tech Congress program, how much more engaged they are in tech policy issues and how, how much better they've been. Um, and then also for the people who've gone through the program, how, how much better they understand the policymaking process and how they can they can be effective and, and engage on it. So I, I agree. I mean, I think that's that's one of the really, really interesting programs. But again, it's, it's relatively new and it's still relatively small. Um, and it would be much nicer if that were you know, larger and, and more standardized as well. But, but you know, it's, it is cool to see the beginnings of, of these things come together. And hopefully that means that, you know, five years, 10 years down the road, you know, we don't have to have this discussion again about how do we, how do we jumpstart this because the program's really, really rolling. Yeah, I agree. So, uh, Bruce, thanks for, for, for taking the time to do this podcast. Thanks for, um, you know, thinking deeply on, on this and, and re related other issues, uh, and, and also for writing about this and, and getting more and more people engaged on these things. I think it's, uh, it's really useful. And I, I hope that everyone listening, uh, has enjoyed the conversation and hopefully it inspires people to go and do stuff. I hope so too. All right. Uh, so thanks again. And thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, we'll be back again uh, with another podcast uh, next week. Thanks. Woohoo. Thank you. All right. So I'm finalizing right. the recording. All right. I'm going to go do my next thing. Cool. All right. Thanks. That was great. Thank you. That was great. All right. Talk to you soon. Bye. 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 Bye.